Whether it's our hearts, lungs, or other organs, the word diagnosis tends to make us uneasy. At Kaiser Permanente, our specialists care for you and about you, working together, creating a treatment plan specific to your diagnosis and total health. So from primary to specialty care, find reassurance in a great team of healthcare professionals committed to your healthy recovery. Visit kp.org slash specialty care to learn more. Kaiser Foundation Health Plan of the Main Atlantic States Incorporated, 2101 East Jefferson Street, Rockville, Maryland, 20852. Welcome back to another episode of Murders, Minors, Killer Kids. This episode is brought to you by the State of Logic podcast. Episode number 16, Their Sister's Keeper. We all remember from our last episode how brutal brothers can be to each other, and it's just painful to imagine that sisters are victimized by their siblings in just as ferocious a manner. I know we don't want to believe it, but in this episode, there are two stories of sisters whose lives ended in their own homes at the hands of those who should have been closer to them than anyone. Part 1 Aurora Knopfstrom Eleven-year-old Dora Betancourt and her 14-year-old half-sister Aurora Knopfstrom were living a seemingly pleasant life with their mother in the suburb of Mundelein, Illinois. Dora's father didn't live in the home with them as he and Don were divorced. Aurora was an avid reader who also performed many of the duties necessary to help keep the home running. Don worked two jobs to support her household as well as maintain the girls' enrollment in private school. Dora was a fifth grader in 2014 and she and Aurora both attended the school at St. John Lutheran Church in Libertyville, Illinois. The bubbly, sparkling 11-year-old was a cheerleader and sang in the school's choir. The two sisters spent a great deal of their time together, and Aurora was often seen playing with her sister in the front yard, practicing cartwheels and cheers. In all honesty, it seemed to neighbors and to Aurora herself that perhaps she was expected to spend more time with Dora than was average. Working two jobs apparently kept Dawn out of the home for most of the day, and no information about joint custody or visitation was found. As the year 2014 began, tensions amongst the small family reached an explosive point. During the second week of January, Aurora had seemingly excessive amounts of responsibility placed on her young shoulders. During the seven days leading up to January 21st, Aurora reportedly had prepared dinner six of those days, in addition to helping Dora with her homework and other chores around the house. On the evening of January 20th, 2014, the sisters were home alone and apparently not getting along like they usually did. According to Aurora, Dora was acting out of control as young kids often do 
Aurora said that Dora was hitting her and that she wasn't at all appreciative of everything that her older sister did to help keep the household running. It was after Dora went to bed that her big sister made the spine-tingling decision to devise a diabolical plan she would carry out just a few hours later. It's been reported that, after spending the evening fighting with her younger sister, 14-year-old Aurora set her morning alarm for earlier than usual. She got up before her little sister and while her mother was at work early on the morning of January 21, 2014. She grabbed a knife and entered Dora's bedroom, intent on ending her life. With each of the approximately 40 stab wounds inflicted on the 11-year-old, her big sister, who had up until then acted as a second mother to the girl, screamed a reason for the attack. Aurora made sure that with each stab her little sister realized that she had not been thankful enough and was an ungrateful child. Happy-go-lucky 11-year-old Dora Betancourt was stabbed by her sister Aurora in the neck, torso, and arms, wounds deep enough to puncture a lung and so numerous an exact count could not be reached. Three deep slashes crisscrossed her face. Defensive wounds were clearly apparent and Dora was ferociously stabbed until her body fell out of the warm safety of her bed onto the hard floor below. Aurora attempted to shower off evidence as she was covered in her sister's blood. She called her mother at work and gave her a false and misleading story claiming that she had heard her screams, entered Dora's bedroom, and found her being straddled and stabbed by a dark-haired man. Her mother instructed her to hang up and dial 911. 14-year-old Aurora was waiting at the front door when officers responded to her call about an intruder around 8.30 a.m. They quickly located 11-year-old Dora Betancourt, deceased on her bedroom floor, a bloody kitchen knife lying on the bed. Officers questioned Aurora, who stated that her morning alarm went off at 7.50 a.m., and when she woke up, she could hear Dora screaming. When she entered her sister's room, she witnessed Dora being assaulted by a man who ran out of the house, yelling threats at her. The possibility of a killer running loose in the neighborhood led law enforcement to initiate lockdowns on the elementary, junior high, and high schools in the area as a precautionary measure. Officers transported Aurora to the station so she could provide them with a more thorough statement. She adamantly stuck to her story about the intruder. However, Aurora was in for a surprise when investigators informed her that her little sister Dora had strands of her killer's hair in her clenched fist. They assured her that through the use of DNA testing techniques, it would not be long until the identity of her sister's killer was unearthed. Aurora abruptly flipped her script and provided detectives with a startling and horrifying confession. She admitted to investigators that she had woken up before her sister, after their mom was at work, with the specific intent to murder. She stated that she was angry because the two had fought the night before. Her little sister wasn't thankful. A 14-year-old girl from the small town of Mundelein, Illinois, has been charged with murder after her younger sister was found stabbed to death at their family home. 
Dora Bentoncourt sustained around 40 knife wounds, mostly around her neck, chest and arms. There is evidence of trauma. Um, and uh, while multiple stab wounds were evident, again, I will defer to the coroner's office for an exact uh, um, determination on that. In court, prosecutors said the suspects yelled reasons for the attack, such as the younger sister not being appreciative of her doing household chores. 14-year-old Aurora Nofstrom was arrested on a charge of juvenile first-degree murder. The only previous contact she had had with law enforcement had been in 2011, when she had reportedly swung a baseball bat at her mother. At her detention hearing the next day, the girl's mother reportedly sat at the same conference table as her daughter. However, both kept their eyes fixed steadily on the judge. Once Assistant State's Attorney Claudia Caston began detailing the events of that tragic day, both mother and daughter began to cry. However, the pair still did not meet each other's gaze. The court assured Aurora and her mother that she would have access to a counselor following the hearing. 11-year-old Dora Bettencourt was buried the following week, honored with a ceremony so large it had to be broadcast to some patrons in the church basement due to the overflow. Her eulogy would be posted on the church website with the reverend having said that Dora now sees the angels cheer, and as the angels cheer, God wins. In late June 2014, Aurora sat beside her mom in court as her attorney requested more time to complete the necessary mental evaluations for his client. The expert they hired would not be able to have his report finished for another month, then additional time would be required for both sides to review it. At that time, state's attorney Michael Nurheim could determine whether Aurora would face charges in juvenile or adult court. As it turned out, because Aurora was still 14 at the time she murdered her sister, her case was eligible to be tried in juvenile court. Had she already turned 15, Illinois law would have prevented that option. As a juvenile defendant, she faced incarceration in a juvenile facility until the age of 21, placement in a residential facility, or just monitoring by the court. Should she be tried as an adult and convicted, Aurora faced 20 to 60 years in a state penitentiary. In November 2014, Aurora was once again in court as her defense attorney requested additional time, now for review of her psychological evaluation. When she appeared in court, she was wearing an orange jumpsuit, indicative of a disciplinary infraction. The judge warned her not to appear out of the normal dark blue again. Aurora said that she had been hanging out and talking in her bedroom with some other residents of the facility. At this early November hearing, multiple members of her family were in attendance and stated they were pleased that Aurora had been spending much of her free time reading. She had already completed all 12 novels in the Christian-based fiction series Left Behind. In late January 2015, just days following the one-year anniversary of Dora's murder, Aurora entered a negotiated plea deal to first-degree murder in Lake County, Illinois. So the minor pled guilty to first-degree murder uh, under the Juvenile Court Act today in Juvenile Court, which means that uh, under that act, 
the court will sentence her to the Illinois Department of Corrections to a term up, to, uh, to up until her 21st birthday. What the act says is that after five years in the Department of Corrections, she can be eligible for parole. Can you talk a little bit about where she'll be sentenced, where she'll be placed, and what kind of services she, she may receive? Um, I can't comment on the facility that she'll be placed at, but I can tell you that we've had extensive contact with the uh, head of the, that facility and have been assured that she will receive the type of treatment that both their expert and our expert agree that she needs, which is uh, intensive psychotherapy and, and there's other treatment that's provided by the Illinois Department of Corrections in the juvenile system as opposed to the adult system, which, again, both our expert and the defense expert has assured us that that's the treatment she needs and will receive. And is the main concern to people on the outside of the issues of the be a safe, productive citizen, you know, when she gets out, is there any way you can describe, you know, what threats you might pose someday, or what? you know, I, could, I think I'd be in a position to comment in much more detail after the sentencing on that. But again, I can tell you, which was said in court today, that we did. There was extensive psychological evaluations done, both by the state and the defense experts. And after that, uh, after the completion of those evaluations and the reports and the talking with the doctors, we are as assured as we can be that if she receives the treatment that she needs she won't be a danger to the community, which is my ultimate concern, uh, not only to bring justice to Dora in this case, but also to make sure that the community is protected and to, uh, to consider the best interest of the minor in this case as well. At her formal sentencing in March 2015, Aurora read a prepared statement in court citing her gratefulness for the psychotherapy she could now receive. She stated that she was truly sorry for the pain she had caused her mother and stepfather, and she hoped that her family could forgive her. She said that she knew that God forgave her and that she would someday hug her sister again in heaven. Aurora made mention of all of the activities she and Dora used to do together, like watch movies and play sports, times she can now only recall in memory. She brightened up a bit when saying that she was grateful for the chance to be released at 21 and start her life over, mentioning her desire to obtain her high school diploma while incarcerated. Dora's father, Aurora's former stepfather, said at her sentencing that it had been tough on the family, losing both Dora and Aurora, and he knew Aurora wanted to get help. Aurora's grandfather said he was happy it was all over with and that Dora was in heaven, in a better place. He said he was glad Aurora was going to receive mental treatment. Her attorney stated that what happened the previous year was an aberration and not representative of who Aurora was. In her written police statement, Aurora had said that her sister was dead because her mind was in another place and the devil was in her. Aurora Nofstrom is eligible for parole in 2020 and scheduled for release in 2021 at the age of 21. She mentioned at her sentencing that she had interest in pursuing a career as a nurse. I'm sure at this point many of you wonder about why exactly Aurora had so much responsibility in her home at such a young age. 
All I can say is she was legally old enough to babysit her sister, and no charges of any sort were ever brought against the girl's mother by law enforcement. And in reality, the damage was already done. Thanks to the State of Logic podcast for their continued sponsorship and support. The State of Logic podcast is like no other. We don't have the same focus as so many other podcasts where we're just going to talk about business or politics or whatever. We talk about everything with everyone, intellectuals, comedians, and celebrities alike. Sometimes it's a 20-minute interview. Sometimes it's a three-hour interview. But at the end of the day, it's a great conversation that we often laugh about and learn something from at the same time. Come check us out at the State of Logic podcast. Part 2. Savan Schmuss Family dynamics have an extremely specific effect on children as they grow up. Any tension, resentment, or buried feelings between the adults in the household are usually fairly evident to the kids who have to live in such an environment. Half-siblings Savan and McKenna had likely been negatively affected by the tumultuous early years of their parents' relationships. McKenna, 18 years old in 2016, had just graduated from East Kentwood High School in western Michigan. She'd been a cheerleader and active in the choir and theater productions. Working at Target at the time, she had aspirations to move to New Orleans and work in the medical profession. Her half-brother Savon had begun spending just the summers with his dad and McKenna's mom in McKenna when he was eight. He lived with them full-time by then and at 16 was attending Crossroads Alternative High School. At their apartment, McKenna and her mom, Stacy Hilton, completed the household. Savon had a full sister who was almost 30 years old in 2016. Although Savon was two years younger than McKenna, it was reportedly McKenna's birth by Stacy that eventually ended Savon's parents' marriage in 1999. Although McKenna absolutely loved her older half-sister and younger half-brother, her mom pointed out that she did sometimes feel that their undealt with anger about their parents' divorce was unfairly projected towards their innocent sister. In 2010, when McKenna was 12 years old, she had a fight with her dad that would result in Child Protective Services contacting local law enforcement to report a possible child abuse neglect situation. In 2010, the father pleaded guilty to taking a picture of then 12-year-old McKenna as she was in the shower. He faced as much as 15 years in prison because of previous convictions on drugs and illegal guns dating back to the 1990s. However, as a result of the plea, he received two years of probation along with requirements for counseling. He would go on to violate his probation for possessing alcohol and then have to spend several weekends in jail, according to court records. As the case went before the judge, Smuss's family members, including Savan, wrote letters supporting him and asking for leniency. Stacy Hilton also pleaded for mercy for her ex-husband. Following his criminal conviction, David and Stacy's relationship appeared to become unstable. They would split and reconcile a few times over the next few years. By the summer of 2016, the four of them were living in the same apartment where Savon and McKenna shared a bedroom. 
McKenna had graduated that spring and went into her first summer of adulthood with an exciting and promising future ahead of her. She had goals and aspirations. However, on August 18th, she was found strangled to death, her body dumped in a wooded area around a city lake. It was actually her 16-year-old half-brother, Savon, who murdered her in their apartment in what was likely a premeditated act, and maybe not even his first attempt if you trust the tale recalled later by Stacy Hilton. After strangling his big sister, he put her body into her own car and drove her around the corner about a mile to be thoughtlessly discarded. I'm sure that when McKenna took the time to make sure Savon knew how to drive, she did not foresee this. Later in the day on August 18th, some poor man innocently walking his dog made the heartbreaking tragic discovery of McKenna's body in those bushes near the trees on the opposite side of the lake from which their apartment was located. Her brother Savon strangled her, dumped her there, then went to Burger King. He then went back home to take the dogs McKenna loved so much, Carl and Chloe, for a walk. He went on to his uncle's house to hang out. McKenna's mother, Stacy, had left the house around 9.30 that morning, telling Savon goodbye as she exited. All day long, she was unable to reach her daughter by phone. When their dad got home from work, he noticed that McKenna's car was parked in the lot. The next phone call was to Target. They were told that not only had McKenna not shown up for work, but that they couldn't reach her either. Savon chimed in then, stating that McKenna had locked her keys in the car before work and had come back into the apartment. He said she had been talking on the phone with someone and left again, still on the phone. Stacy went back outside and began glancing around. She grabbed her phone to check local news websites. Unbelievably, she read that the body of a young woman had been found about a mile away. On her wrist a charm bracelet that sounded just like the one McKenna had recently received as a graduation gift. McKenna's parents and brother went directly to the police station demanding to see a photo of the poor young girl whose vibrant spark had been snuffed out way before its time. And then their worst fear was right there in their faces. McKenna had been murdered. All three were interviewed by investigators. When Savon's turn came up, police quickly let him know that they weren't buying his story. It didn't take much prompting for Savon to flatly confess that he had murdered his sister. David and Stacy were absolutely blindsided by this horrifying revelation. Savon had seemed as scared and upset as everyone else. They had worried how he would react when he realized that he hadn't been able to protect his sister. According to McKenna's mom, Stacy, who was present at the police station, Savon told detectives that he had always wanted to kill his half-sister. A few years earlier, he had forcefully pushed her down the stairs, and he told police that he had been trying to kill McKenna, even then. Though he confessed, he offered no motive for his unforgivable actions. 
Savon was arrested and charged as an adult with open murder, leaving him vulnerable to a life sentence without parole if convicted. Prosecutors say they obtained a warrant this afternoon charging 16-year-old Savon Shamus with open murder and that they are charging him as an adult. Prosecutors say Shamus was the victim's half-brother and that they believe he killed her in the city of Grand Rapids. But they've refused to talk about a possible motive or a cause of death, though authorities have said there were marks on Hilton's neck indicating she may have been strangled. A man walking his dog found her body last Thursday not far from the road at Emerald Lake Drive and Valentine Street Northeast in Grand Rapids Township, where she apparently had been dumped. Hilton was a well-liked student at East Kentwood High School, where she was a cheerleader and performed in musicals and plays. She graduated in the spring. As for Shamus, he has no prior criminal record. Prosecutors have said they were living in the same household. If convicted, he could face up to life in prison without parole. In late September 2016, a forensic examination was ordered in court to determine if Savon was competent to stand trial and be held criminally responsible for his sister's murder. Savon turned 17 the following month, behind bars in an adult prison. About a year later, in October 2017, Savon, now just about 18 years old, accepted a deal and pled guilty to first-degree premeditated murder. When the hearing adjourned, McKenna's grieving and angry mother yelled out to Savon to rot in hell. She didn't think that his young age played any role in his crime and thought that if anyone deserved life imprisonment, it was Savon. Savon's side of the family sat on the complete opposite side of the courtroom, Tempers flared and angry words were exchanged once everyone had exited the courtroom. At his sentencing on October 30, 2017, McKenna's mother was bold and forthright with her statements. To my daughter McKenna, I want to say I love you. And I'll always love you. We all love you and we miss you so very much. And I'm so proud of you. We're becoming. Some kind of justice or something that 
you can do judge to bring my daughter back. That would be the only justice there could be. But what he did was so heinous, it was premeditated, it was so hateful, so evil. He doesn't deserve a second chance. We kind of doesn't get one, we don't get one. He doesn't deserve one. David Schmuss was a bit less succinct. David Schmuss, with a quote from the New Testament. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. McKenna's side of the family desired to see this case go to trial. However, they understood that the higher court rulings essentially tied the hands of the prosecution. They were disappointed that a life sentence without the possibility of parole was not an option. Although McKenna's mother advocated for a trial and the opportunity for a longer sentence, she said that prosecutors refused to pursue it and offered Savannah a deal to save money. The state contends, however, that they could not meet the burden of proof necessary to secure the conviction. Although Stacy made many allegations regarding Savon's past behavior issues in school and within the family, prosecutors could not get any corroborating witnesses whatsoever. Even though Savon had changed schools several times, ultimately landing at an alternative high school, no significant behavioral issues were documented to be the reason. Savon had no criminal record and no diagnosed mental illness, though Stacy referred to him in several interviews as a psychopath. Savon and McKenna's father, David, always supported his son and advocated for a much more lenient sentence than was ever even an option. He reportedly did not attend any of the meetings held by the prosecution for the family of the victims, but attended all defense meetings held in support of Savon. He's also said that he believes her murder was actually an accident. A judge sentenced the teen who pleaded guilty to killing his own half-sister today. He ruled 40 to 100 years in prison for Savon Schmuss. After dealing with several murders and sexual assaults on children, this is the most horrific crime the court has handled. Regardless, victims' mothers and families and friends left behind can feel less than vindicated when a sentence includes the chance for parole. Understandably so. There's been a recent twist to this depraved tale of family dysfunction. In October, police say that David Smith left his cell phone in someone else's car, and that person found sexual pictures of children. The phone was given to Smuss's 30-year-old daughter, who turned it over to police. He then confessed to police he had been searching for teen porn and admitted to looking at images of teens younger than 16. He was also charged with possession of narcotics, although that was dismissed as part of a plea deal. Tuesday, Smuss was sentenced to between one and a half and six years in prison. I talked to Stacy Hilton, the mother of the murder victim but not the murderer, who said the child pornography conviction gives grim clarity to what happened to her daughter six years before she was killed, but her loss remains. Stacy Hilton has made sure that her daughter's memory stays alive. McKenna had a heart geared toward the service of others. Along that vein, Stacy organized a day of service dubbed hashtag tie-dye heart day, designed to promote volunteer service and donations made toward a wide variety of causes and foundations. August 18, 2017 was the inaugural event held on the one-year anniversary of McKenna's murder with hopes that it continues each year. 
Along the lines of self-care, Stacy became involved with the Grand Rapids chapter of Gilda's Club, a grief and cancer support organization formed in honor of the late comedic actress Gilda Radner. It's been some two years since her daughter McKenna was murdered at the hands of her own half-brother. In shock and grief-stricken, Hilton found help in a place she never knew she could, Gilda's Club. This year, she decided to get involved in Laugh Fest. It's the big annual fundraiser happening now for Gilda's Club. This will be Stacey Hilton's first time trying out her comedy skills in front of a crowd, and yes, she is nervous. Helping her get through it will be the thought of her daughter. She says there's no doubt about it that McKenna would have thought even the idea of her doing this was seriously funny. I think she would be hideously embarrassed, but I'm sure she would still be rooting me on. For her, Gilda's Club made all of the difference. So I felt free to cry there, and I felt free to talk to them about everything that was going on, and they 100% understood because they were going through the same things. Now, she is hoping to make her own difference. Yeah, I want to do something that makes other people laugh and see that even though you are grieving, you can still have some laughter in your life, and it's okay. So hopefully have her look down from heaven and be proud of me. But tragically, there is simply no justice for these families. Thank you again for joining me for episode 16. I'm going to leave you with a few promos for podcasts you should be subscribing to. Thanks to Carwin and Marco at the Wafflecast for keeping me entertained. These guys are saving me so much time. They give me news, review shows and movies I don't have time to watch. They listen to music I haven't gotten around to listening to yet, and then they tell me all about it. All with genuine insight, humor, and the occasional skit. Make sure to give them a listen. Another great show you should be listening to is the all-new Status Pending podcast. The Amazing Heather, host of the Nature vs. Narcissism podcast and a longtime friend of the show, has teamed up with Scott of the Frozen Truth podcast. Have a listen see what they're all about. They have a really interesting approach to helping get justice for DJ. Getting Off Podcast features criminal defense attorneys Jessa and Nick as they engage in dark-humored discussions about crimes, trials, law, juries, and all other things criminal. See you very soon for two unbelievable tales of violence against grandmothers. Who would have ever thought it? But until then, lovelies, don't be scared. This season on The Wafflecast. The host depraved buttocks spread like a bird ready to take flight. I kicked the baby. I did it. I did. I, I kicked, kicked a baby. baby. Which is fucking weird. But the me. baby wasn't real, though. Honey, <laughs> your coffee's done drinkable. Pretty harsh. Well, so's your coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah bought like hamburger helper once. I damn near had a fit about that. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, dude. Wanting to sell laser guns. Yeah. To gain. Which oddly Are enough, you serious? <laughs> almost. Like the show almost gets to something. He's like, you look pretty good. Hey, man. <laughs> Check your local listings or go to www.waffleproductions.com. <laughs> There are many true crime podcasts available, each offering a different perspective to the genre. 
each with their own niche that pulls the listener in by tugging at their heartstrings or their funny bone in one way or another. What we aim to do with Status Pending is make you think. We want you to feel as though you're connected to the case. We want you to feel something. The cases we're going to cover have discrepancies of some sort and may or may not be well known. They are either unsolved, prematurely closed, or open without any solid leads. We want to get these stories out to the public, for the family, and for the victims. Join us every month for a different case, which will be a different chapter in our podcast, as we take a three-part look into the facts. We'll have interviews, expert opinions, and more. And we'll also be looking for suggestions from you for cases to take on as we move forward. You can email us at statuspendingpodcasts at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to Status Pending wherever you listen to podcasts. that a defendant got acquitted? Are you interested in criminal justice reform? Do you often find yourself making extraordinarily inappropriate jokes while swearing like a sailor? Then the Getting Off podcast is for you. Hosted by us. Two real live criminal defense attorneys. Getting Off explains the legal reasons behind outcomes in famous trials and tackles tough topics in the world of crime and criminal justice. We use firsthand sources like trial transcripts, police reports, crime scene photographs, and appeals briefs to give you the information that the public rarely hears about when it comes to the criminal justice system. Our podcast isn't about carefully crafted musical interludes or obsessively edited narratives. Instead, it is a no-holds-barred, unedited, raw legal presentation by two lawyers that have spent over a decade each in the trenches. Previously covered cases include Casey Anthony, Michael Peterson, Jody Arias, and more. Subscribe to the Getting Off podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do that to get off now. As always, Murderous Miners is mixed and mastered by my professional engineers at Resonate Recordings. If you've been thinking of starting a podcast, and you know you have, visit ResonateRecordings.com today and have your first episode produced for free.